Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here tonight. Oh, today. Sorry. I'm in Poland, so it's nighttime. Uh, it is not a uh, error or a technical problem that you can't see me. I have my camera off and only because, uh, well, if you were here yesterday, you know that I have COVID. And uh, while I feel pretty good, I um, am find myself grabbing a Kleenex and wiping my nose and having my eyes water and even coughing quite a lot. So uh, if you were here uh, for the 1130 show, 1130 Eastern, uh, you know that we're going to talk with, uh, we started talking with Thomas uh, then, and we're going to continue the conversation. Uh, we had it, we started the conversation with Thomas in the earlier show. Uh, but no worries. If you weren't there, we'll, we'll kind of do a re. Oh, there he is. Hold on, Thomas. I'm going to just bring you on. Hold on. I don't know, Thomas, we're going to start thinking it's your show soon. I mean, can see you and see me. Um, have you thought at all about how we could recap what we talked about in the, in the earlier show, or do you want me to, to do a recap? What do you think would be best there? Well, just very quickly, you know, we started unpacking the conflict in a, in a slightly different way. Um, looking at it from the perspective of, um, first the level being just the, the, the kinetic war between uh, Russia and Ukraine with different forces that support either side. Um, then at the level of the European conflict, what it actually means and why certain countries are more involved in this than others directly. And then finally, within a broader context of, uh, the, you know, global struggle for a new, um, security architecture, a new world order as the old one is, um, crumbling in front of our eyes, uh, somewhere on in Donbass. So, um, yes, that's, before you that's, go on, let me, let me just interrupt. Let, let, we'll, let's just kind of have a little small talk here for a couple of minutes. Um, my camera is off, so it's not a problem that you can't see me. It's deliberate and my camera's only off because it, well, if you, as you know, if you were here yesterday, I have COVID and while I feel pretty good, I don't look so good and I'm wiping my nose a lot and I'll probably have to mute my mic a few times while I cough. So, so you don't get to see me today, which may be a blessing, but you will get to see Thomas. And, uh, let me explain again. We started this conversation at 1130 on the 1130 show. We're going to recap it. Or we've already started recapping it and then we're going to dig into it. Let me just say, Thomas, you had sent me a note earlier. Let me just read this. Cause I think it's really useful for context. Thomas sent me a note, I guess yesterday that said there are essentially three wars going on. Do you have your Russian dolls handy? Cause that was a really handy visual. There's essentially, <laughs> there's essentially three wars going on like Russian dolls, one inside another. So the first war is the one we're all here talking about, which is Ukraine versus Russia. And then inside that doll is the second war. And that's what Thomas is calling the European war. And we covered a lot of history related to that. And then inside that, which is where we're going to pick up today. And by the way, we're going to try to get a tape made available of the earlier show, if you want to go back and watch it, but the third war is the one that's frankly the most frightening. Uh, it, as Thomas says, world war for the establishment of a new world order. I mean, those are not comforting words, Thomas. No, they're not. But you know, before we get there, I think I want to uh, sort of, uh, spend some time on the European aspect of sure. Um, so if you allow me, let me just, just kickstart that. Please. Um, I, uh, th you have to picture more or less the map of Europe and, uh, 
especially Europe that Russia obsesses about for historical reasons as I mentioned, you know, a couple of hours ago. Um, this is the spread from the Baltic Sea all the way to the Black Sea. Okay, so it includes part of the Nordic countries, um, the so-called Central Europe and Southeastern Europe. So all the way from uh, Sweden to Turkey. And all of these countries have a long history of being in conflict with Moscow. It intensified from around 16th century, I'd say. Uh, spectacularly in the case of Sweden and uh, Polish, Lithuanian Commonwealth and Turkey, which are the three most important players in that space. So it's important now because as you'll find in a the moment, there are really good uh, strategic and historical reasons why these countries are involved right now in the conflict and how they are involved and why more than others and what it means for the conflict and what it means for future uh, European architecture in general, um, because it goes way beyond our usual thinking about NATO or European Union and so on. So let me start from north to south, and I'll speak about Sweden for a moment, which is in the news right now because it's considering entering. Can um, I, I'm going to interrupt you for a sec, Thomas. I want to suggest if you haven't already done this, I'm actually have a Google map of Europe and Russia pulled up in front of me, and I'm finding it really useful as Thomas is talking because I can look at exactly what he's saying and understand how the borders relate to each other and how the countries relate to each other. So if you hadn't done that, you might want to do it now. I think you'll, I think you'll really find it useful. So thank you for letting me interrupt. Yeah. So, so if you look at the map, if you have it somewhere, um, you know, Sweden looks like it's kind of far away, you know, it's on the other side of the Baltic sea. It doesn't have a border with Russia. It doesn't have a border with Ukraine. So, you know, what the heck Sweden, but historically there was no Finland, right? Finland was part of Sweden. Since the time of the so-called Northern Crusades, so when the Christians of what is now Sweden uh, moved further east to Christianize, often forcibly, the Ugrophinic groups that lived there, so the Finns as we know them today, and actually Swedish language is still today spoken as the second language in the southern part of Finland. Um, but in 1809, after yet another disastrous war between Sweden and R Russia, Russian Empire, Finland became part of Russia and was part of Russia from 1809 until 1915 as a Grand Duchy of Finland. Well, this Grand Duke was, of course, the Russian Tsar. So it was really part of the Russian Empire. But it's important what happened before that, before 1809. For about 100 years, since the Thirty Year War in Europe, which is beginning of the 17th century, until sometime 100 years later, the Swedish Empire was the most powerful nation in Europe, um, fighting uh, over dominance in the north, um, mostly against Russia, but also against Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that it sacked in the middle of the 17th century to the point where that entity, the very, very powerful uh, state, Poland-Lithuania, the union of the two, uh, never really managed to recover from that, what they call dilute. So, why was Sweden so powerful? Because it kind of won the Thirty Year War, the you know the religious war, and owned uh, properties, important properties in northern part of the Holy Roman Empire, which is the Germany of today, in the north. And then the Baltic was just a big Swedish lake. It matters because Russia has been for several years um, prodding Sweden um, with 
uh, encroachments, both uh, Russian Navy and uh, Russian Air Force and so on. Gotland, which is the largest island on the Baltic, uh, part of Sweden, has seen a lot of military exercises to protect it against a po possible takeover by Russia. Why is Russia doing this? Because Russia doesn't really have good access to um, to the sea other than through one bay in the Baltics. And of course, this is, this is, this is what Crimea takeover was, uh, was about, right? So basically to control Sevastopol and the, um, naval base there, which was leased from Ukraine, um, access to the sea, access to, you know, blue water Navy to, 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 to get out of those two sort of almost lakes, like the Baltic and uh, Black Sea has always been strategically very important for Russia. And Sweden, historically, before its very disastrous battle of Poltava, Poltava is a city in Ukraine, um, somewhere between Kharkiv and Dnipro, um, that battle in the early 18th century finished what actually existed as a, an alliance between what we call today Ukraine and Sweden. There was an alliance. Um, the head of the, of the Zaporozhian Hetmanat at that time, that is part of Ukraine, today's Ukraine, his name was Ivan Mazepa. And he was allied with Swedes against Moscow. Okay. And Sweden lost that war. And that battle of Poltava was basically the end of aspirations, Ukrainian or say Ukrainian Cossack aspirations for some kind of independence of Moscow on the Eastern uh, side of, of the Dnieper river, at least and the rest came under, uh, Moscow's, um, dominance, uh, with the collapse of the Polish, um, Lithuanian Commonwealth in the late 18th century, where that nation was partitioned between Prussia, Austria, and, and Russia. Western part of Ukraine became, became part of Austria, by the way. And the, so Sweden matters. So you can think it's far away, but it did fight in Ukraine historically, right? And lost that, that battle. And by the way, Ivan Mazepa, the head of the, the hetman of the general, if you wish, of, of, of the Ukrainian force at that time is to this day, um, considered, uh, an anathema in a, uh, Russian Orthodox church. So there are a lot of prayers for his eternal damnation because you see the Russian Orthodox church, and we can have a separate <laughs> about it is, and has always been a branch of the, of, of the empire and today also functions in a similar way. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting topic because of course, Ukraine's churches also fall into, into play here as well. So that's Sweden, Finland, um, became independent of Russia in 1915 is also trying to join NATO right now has a very long border with Russia and famously fought against Soviet union shortly after the, the fourth partition of Poland. So that is the, what happened in that, you know, September of 1939. So when Hitler and Stalin invaded Poland and Stalin soon after all the, uh, Baltic states, and then tried to also invade Finland. This was only partly successful. Um, and the Finns defended themselves very well. And so since the second world war, the Finns have maintained so-called, uh, neutrality, but it's a qualified neutrality because the country's allied, uh, with the United States and NATO loosely. And, um, it's, uh, you know, the situation has changed in the last couple of months, but it, Probably that sort of Moscow sanction trally was the longest, the strongest during the presidency of what called Kekkonen, who was a long time president in the seventies in Finland. And many people say he was a simply a Russian stooge. Um, so there, there were, you know, different waves in terms of the Finnish, Finnish neutrality. Uh, but as I say, fin, fin, Finland's statehood is much, uh, 
more recent phenomenon compared to, to Sweden. And then on jumping all the way down south to Turkey, for Turkey, the problem is the Black Sea. Turkey doesn't want to see Black Sea becoming a Russian lake. And uh, Turkey also has a long history of um, wars uh, against Moscow. Believe it or not, during the, uh, the, the, the decades of the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire on the other side, you know how many wars there were between the two? Twelve. Twelve what? wars between the Ottomans and the, and, and the Russian Tsars. Of course, one of them very famously was the Crimea war in the middle of the 19th century, but let's say this was slightly different conflict because Britain and France were involved against Russia and probably was more about the Britain, the, uh, the British being very concerned about Russian expansion and, uh, Turkey was already kind of a very, very weak player at the time, but most of these wars anyway, ended disastrously for, for Turkey and importantly. One of those in late 18th century led to Turkey losing Crimea. Um, so Turkey might say probably did not really exercise hundred percent control over Crimea, but there was a, um, Tatar Khanate there and Tatars were a vassal state of, of, uh, Istanbul. And so that was lost in late 18th century uh, to Russia. And this is how Crimea became Russian, supposedly eternally Russian, but it's only late 18th century. Um, so. So th there's, you know, there is definitely a concern in Turkey that after many years where both countries benefited from trade, you know, if you land in Istanbul, you will be struck at the airport that you hear three languages, Turkish, English, and Russian, um, you know, Russian maids, very popular, Russian wives, very popular in Turkey, a lot of, uh, trade going there across the Black Sea. And now all of this is in tatters. So Turkey is building a, a strong alliance within the Turkic belt, uh, where it suddenly be, will become very, very useful when we speak about the global ex extension of the, of, of, of the conflict later on, um, because it, it's, uh, you know, a lot of countries of, of Turkic ethnic Turkic origin, which right now are screaming for an alternative alternative away from, uh, the Moscow Beijing axis. And let's coming back, come back to Europe. Because the third key country, other than Sweden and Turkey, this is Poland. And Poland still has a, has a long history of um, wars with Russia and Soviet Union as well. And it was famously dominated by um, the Tsars in the 19th century and by Soviet Union in the 20th century. And um, this is important for Ukraine because the history of Ukraine with its current borders is basically history of um, struggle for independence against Polish Lithuanian dominance towards the West and Russian dominance towards, towards the, the East. Um, so many wars that were fought between Moscow and, uh, Poland, Lithuania were fought on what is today, Ukraine, Ukrainian grounds. Now, why it, it, it doesn't matter. And of course, there are also the Baltic states and uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, um, that fall into this belt. It's important because the former uh, national security advisor of, uh, Jimmy Carter, speaking of Brzezinski, he saw an alliance, sort of a horizontal alliance. If you look at European map stretching from France, Germany, Poland to Ukraine, right? Four countries, four largest countries of that, of, of, of the main European mass, um, land mass. Um, this is now. Uh, 
unlikely to happen. It's unlikely to happen not only because the French are distracted by presidential election these days, but because of how the, this particular uh, chapter of the European war started. It started with Russia essentially corrupting the elites in the countries that um, struggled to maintain um, energy security, and that's predominantly Austria, Italy, and Germany. Uh, in 2004, the outgoing chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schröder, signed um, the guarantees, state guarantees for a debt uh, credit facility for a, an important pipeline um, uh, financed by Gazprom, the Russian state-owned uh, company, upon which he retired from office as a chancellor of Germany and joined the Russian company, which is, you know, shows that the high-level corruption is not something unique to the United States. Um, and not only that, you know, Germany became very, very deeply dependent on Russian gas and oil imports, um, which was for Putin a, an important piece in that on the chessboard is to exclude Germany from potential anti-Russian alliance, that horizontal alliance that Brzezinski spoke about. And he was, up until February 24th, extremely successful with that. He actually had Germany in the pocket, regardless of the changing governments, you know, Merkel for 15 years and Scholz since, since last uh, November. Um, so uh, this is crumbling right now. Things are changing in, in Germany. And yet the attitude to Russia because of what's called Erinnerungskultur, so the culture of remembrance, remembrance of what of what Germans did supposedly to Russians during the Second World War, though it's the Soviet Union and all the other uh, ethnicities that lived there. And of course, if you look at the map, the first ethnicities that suffered from Hitler's invasion were the Belarusians and Ukrainians and not Russians themselves. But Russia exploits that, you know, memory of the Second World War is something uniquely Russian. Somehow Ukrainians didn't participate far. So that's a problem. That's, Germany is a problem. And therefore, instead of seeing this horizontal extension of a pro-Ukrainian alliance that would, that would include Ukraine, it's this vertical, this, this sort of north-south extension that makes a lot more sense with Sweden, Finland, the Baltic states, um, sorry, the Baltic countries, better said, Poland, um, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Romania, um, Bulgaria, and Turkey, with Turkey, Sweden, and Poland being the key players there, and of course, Ukraine. Uh, so when do we hear about the European war? The two topics, you know, on the occasion of this kinetic conflict, where you have to think in European terms and not just purely about what's happening in Donbass or Kiev or Mariupol or, or Odessa. It's uh, when you hear of nuclear weapons, uh, when you hear the term rollover. So let me start with nuclear weapons. Uh, we're talking here about tactical nuclear weapons. The original incentive uh, for Putin to move into Kiev was the plan to uh, quickly move over three days, take over the capital, exchange the government, uh, negotiate, put everybody under pressure and then threaten everybody else with nukes so that nobody can actually do anything. Because of course, you know, if you're sitting on a sofa in Paris, that's what you're concerned about. You're not really concerned about Luhansk, you're concerned about nukes. And so why are nukes so important for Russia? Why is this, this, this crown argument? Well, because Russia doesn't have conventional forces superiority in Europe. 
it had that superiority. Soviet Union had that superiority during the Cold War, up until the end of the Cold War. But a superiority in terms of conventional forces. And this is why NATO used always tactical nukes. In the 1980s, you know, so Lee Brezhnev, Andropov, um, Chernenko, and, and Gorbachev, using the threat of tactical weapons as the ultimate argument against Russia. And the roles have switched. Because now it's the West that has conventional superiority and Russia has to use the, the nuke threat. So the nuke threat is not about nuking, you know, Chernobyl or Zaporozhye or something. It's about nuking native countries, nuking countries potentially in that north-south axis there. So that's the first one that's on the side of the escalation initiative that Russia has in terms of the European war. But there is also a little bit of escalation initiative on the other side, and this comes to the, um, problem of log rollover. So what is the rollover? So the issue of heavy weaponry, um, delivery to Ukraine is something that's been framed in many ways, you know, let's, let's not give them lethal weaponry because we don't want the war to escalate. Okay. Let's give them some anti-tank missiles and, and, uh, and some stingers so they can at least defend themselves. And now it's, you know, let's give them really heavy equipment because otherwise they're going to be wiped out and wiped out really in ethnic cleansing terms. Uh, and so, uh, rollover means that the equipment that Ukrainians are best prepared to use is the former Soviet equipment and only the former Warsaw Pact nations. So Czech Republic, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, and potentially Baltic countries have that equipment. It's old and sometimes not very well maintained, but sometimes it is maintained and it's not really very necessary unless of course these countries enter into a kinetic uh, conflict with russia which is which cannot be entirely um, ruled out given the border that the baltic countries share with russia and that poland shares with um, belarus which as i mentioned before sort of lost its independence since uh, 2020 and in particular in the last couple of months and therefore um, it's important that the equipment that these countries send to um to ukraine is replaced with Western and predominantly U.S. equipment on which, say, Romanian or Lithuanian soldiers can be uh, quickly uh, trained. Now, it doesn't mean that Ukraine doesn't receive modern equipment from the United States. It does, and actually, these Ukrainians are being trained here, so before being flown back and uh, to to operate that equipment. But a, lo a lot in big numbers, you know, there's a, there are, for example, reports of uh, Polish magazines mysteriously. Uh, somehow losing 100 tanks, 100 T-82 tanks, right? So where are they? Are they gone, disappeared, vanished, evaporated? But not knowing is better than knowing. So you might remember the MiG-29 Bruhaha back in, in March where politicians spoke too much about it. Um, we, are, we have gone through a second leg of this. So right now it's happening without being talked about. But the German TV still managed to show the... Um, it's, it looks like a Zoom meeting of the of the heads of states discussing Air Force support for Ukraine, and it's interesting to see that there were six participants in that. It was Boris Johnson, uh, was Fumio Kishida, the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Joe Biden, uh, Alvin Michel, head of the European Council, Ursula von der Leyen, head of the European Commission, and Andrzej Duda, the Polish president. Now, the last one is interesting because Poland is part of EU. So why is there a, a, a separate representative of one country? I'll let you only guess. It's good enough to say that, right? 
But uh, obviously, the countries that I mentioned before on this north-south extension are extremely important. And they're also important, as I said, because it's just very, very handy to uh, provide those, um, the material and the equipment that Ukrainians can immediately use, right? So, so the time rollover is something you might, you might hear, read about, and it's about that equipment that's immediately uh, put to, to work in, um, in, in, in Ukraine. And as we heard from friends in, in Ukraine, a lot of Polish military trucks on roads in Ukraine, except no number plates on, right? And we don't know who drives them. So it's good that there is a bit of a hybrid war here. Remember Russians were always adapted hybrid war. Uh, and uh, it's good that there is a rethinking about energy security. Um, this actually could accelerate much faster in Germany, not least because Germany refuses to pay for gas in rubles. And this would probably lead to a uh, breach of contract. And, and if that's what Russia wants, that's what Russia wants, you know, and it's going to be a big industrial problem for, for Germany. So Germany is undergoing a tectonic shift really in terms of the nature of its internal uh, debate about where to be. And I have to say, and I come to, to this probably another time because we're running out of time. When we speak about the global repercussions next time, so what it means for a global order, keeping Germany on the Western side of the divide is one of the key elements for success, not only in the struggle against Russia, but also importantly in the struggle against China, because where Germany is, there will be also European Union. And right now, um, you know, the, 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 the narrative is, is, is very strong. You know, they speak of Zeitenwende, the change of, of times, um, but the actions don't necessarily follow, especially in terms of the military support, but they don't follow because the history of the country is different. We all obsess about, you know, the first world war, especially the second world war and the conflicts between Germany and Russia, but Germany and Russia, most of time had a symbiotic, um, uh, relation when Europe was ruled by a so-called concert of empires. So empires that could over and above different ethnicities, whether Ukrainians or Czechs or Slovaks or Slovenes or Poles or Estonians, just basically arrange their affairs. And there was very little attention paid to those smaller nations. So empires, you know, whether it's Austria, uh, uh, Prussia, Russia. Uh, Britain, France, they decided what happened to everybody else. And with the emergence of European Union, which was the end of the Imperial um, uh, Europe, because during that early days, France, Netherlands, UK lost their uh, colonial um, uh, possessions outside of Europe and had to reconstitute their position in the world. And what does it mean to, 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 to be a former empire? Where, where, where do you? expose your energy and where, where do you connect? And this is how European Union made sense, especially on the continent. But it doesn't mean that their interests are allied, especially in Western Europe, with interests of um, Ukraine and its immediate neighbors from north, north to south and the United States, which is an important supporter of these nations on the Rimland, as we call it, so the Limitrov nations for reasons which are not European, but of global nature. So as I said, we'll talk about it next. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so. If you had a magic, what do they call it? A, if you had a, uh, a crystal ball. Mm -hmm. 
what do you how would what would you predict the new world order would look like and, and is it a year from now is it five years from now it all depends on what happens in that ukrainian russian conflict it uh -huh. really depends on that first because countries for the first time in decades have to align themselves clearly have to align themselves remember you know up until a couple of weeks ago <clears throat> U.S. diplomacy would go to Southeast Asia and said, oh, you know, you don't have to choose between China and U.S., you know, it's okay to, you know, be friends with both. That's not the message that uh, U.S. is sending to New Delhi right now. Yeah. Or anywhere else for that matter. Yeah. So, um, so uh, it's, it's a dividing world and it, the, the division will continue. And I think it's in the interest of the countries that I mentioned at the beginning, that sort of North-South North alliance to push Russia away from Europe, push Russia away from Europe and U.S. might have the same interest. Finish once and for all, at least for many generations to come with any Russian ambitions, imperial ambitions in Europe, reconcentrate Russia on Central Asia where there is a competition with China and maybe do what they call a reverse Kissinger with a post-Putin Russia, right? Germany would be in favor of that. That would be a good option for Ukraine and for other countries in, in Central Europe. And they have a role to play, but I think they have to actually buck up and create a defense that's not overly dependent on the United States because we in the US will have a much bigger conflict in the Western Pacific rather soon. So we, we cannot, um, you know, protect everybody. They have to really come up and, and show the metal at least as, as the Ukrainians are right now with their bravery and their commitment. Yeah. Thomas, I'm, I want to ask you one last question. Um, I'm doing this without looking at my calendar. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have a guest scheduled for the show tomorrow. Could you come back and, and people are starting to ask questions and could, would you be free to come back tomorrow at two and, you know, we can recap this again and people have questions. We're getting hearts. Would you be able to do that? Let me, I have something, but let me see if I can shift it around. Okay. 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 And, and I have to check and make sure that our schedule is free as well. If not tomorrow, one day next week.